Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hi, welcome back to another episode of In the Landscape with Kate and Charles Sadler. We're back. (laughs) Hi, Charles. (laughs) So we're your hosts, of course. For those listeners who've tuned in week after week, you know we're this husband and wife team that owns a landscape design company, which does work all over, but we have offices in New York and in Texas. And so our our work is varied, as you can imagine. Those two regions are pretty (laughs) different from each other in terms of plant life and climate. Yeah, so we're here back in the studio getting ready to record for this coming week. You know, we've already mentioned like the intros to our podcasts have taken a little bit of a turn because we're all dealing with the global pandemic and there was the stay-at-home order for many of us in different regions of the world and and the turning inward and, and maintaining our own gardens became sort of a priority in earnest, <laughs> you know. And of course, as we come out of that, as some some countries are opening safely. You know, the the idea of still maybe promoting food security through back gardens and and things like that is still something that, you know, we have interest in. Mm -hmm. So we talk about current events and, and, you know, I think we've expressed a philosophy in this podcast that landscape should be accessible and a benefit to as many people as possible. And we sort of couch it in generalities and you know, just because it's true, it should be accessible to everybody and open and, and the landscape is healing and powerful and valuable. And so that openness is important. Of course, in the United States in the last couple weeks, I guess, um, we were sort of in the midst of things when we recorded our most recent episode, the urgency with which we are beginning to address Black Lives Matter the treatment of Black, Indigenous, and people of color in this country has really escalated to the point that voices are not willing to be silenced, um, Mm -hmm. appropriately so. But, you know, we're two white, (laughs) (laughs) middle-aged, middle-class people living in the suburbs of Texas. And and so there's always a question of, of where and how we use our modest platform, the fact that we have a website that people visit or mm-hmm. an Instagram page that people follow and, and this podcast. And for us, of course, we can make efforts to highlight the stories of Black, Indigenous, and people of color's contributions to the landscape sciences and the landscape arts to be proactive in that. But um, just to share a little bit, you know, we've mentioned our son and the fact that he came through to our family through adoption and he happens to be black. And so that's not to be performative and say we're therefore not racist or, or whatever, somehow better than, but to say that our journey is somewhat personal and private as we wrestle with issues of racism in our own family not that our family members have been, but that there's maybe an underlying privilege and bias that we're not necessarily aware of and have become more aware of by virtue of who our son is and how much we want to honor and support and encourage him and keep him safe. So I think we're both both certainly privately committed to deeply anti-racist work in ourselves to educating ourselves and um, showing up every day for him and his community and his his birth family and his ancestry and heritage and all of that. So 
if we don't get it right, or if we don't say, you know, we don't want to take, we don't want to be the ones to assume that we have really anything to say in this matter, except that we have work to do. Mm -hmm. And then otherwise privileged Black voices, Indigenous voices, people of color's voices, when we have an opportunity to do so. And otherwise, get deep with ourselves and figure out what what our responsibilities are in terms of, of being you know, actively anti-racist in our deeds and words. Right. Agreed. So it's a big topic for us and one that we didn't want to leave unsaid, but it didn't feel authentic to rush together an episode where we talk about people of color or Black lives in a way that was inauthentic. The episode is going to be focused on something that is a part of your personal history, Charles, and that is the passing of the artist Christo. Right. And his work in the landscape, which we thought was uh, appropriate. But we didn't want to just head into a fresh new episode as though, you know, the world is not (laughs) being racked by reckoning that is long overdue. And Mm -hmm. so we hope that if you have a story you'd like us to follow, if you have suggestions for us, we are open. Um, We're open to corrections. We're open to recommendations. And we just pray for better days to come for for our son and for all the Black community in our country and around the world uh, mm-hmm. who have faced issues of white supremacy and racism. So, so Christo, what do you have to share with us about his work and why is it considered a relevant topic for our podcast in particular? Well, he's certainly, I mean, if our mantra is in the landscape, he's certainly in the, his work, some of his very early work. It did start in a gallery, but it wasn't, didn't have that incredible power. So a recent, not, not his most recent project, but the Gates that was in New York City, where it was these fabric panels that were uh, hung on a, on a, more or less like an orange saffron gate, thousands of them in the middle of winter in February in Central Park. Many of his projects are in the landscape. And so it's, that's what's so special. It's landscapes that are wonderful on their own. And it's this like artistic insertion and it's very temporary. It's like only for about two weeks and it takes years of planning sometime and all his work is self-funded. So he does uh, rendering studies of what this will look like and people of means, art galleries, institutions admire what he does and they collect his work and that funds. And the work is, I mean, the projects are millions of dollars and he raises all that himself and it's for everybody. And it's had profound social effects on societies. The building in Germany, you can probably pronounce that better than me. Oh, the Reichstag. Right. I mean, so that has, that was the Nazi headquarters. And so there was, I mean, talking about when you, in the intro about uh, racism in the U.S. So, I mean, Germany had a reckoning and they embraced that past. And so, Christo is not German, but he's a, a European. He fled, you know, as a young person. He was not safe where he was living in Europe. So his projects, he's known as the art, artist that raps. So it started off as way, way back in the mid-20th century. It would be a picture, and he would wrap that like in fabric or in brown paper. And so it's, it creates this mystery. I wonder what that is. And then it went on to architecture, wrapping this building in Germany. The building that was wrapped in Germany the Reichstag, that was also in the winter, I think. And so it's, it's this temporary happening where 
the building's not in use. It's wrapped in this very like almost metallic fabric. So it's like like a synthetic nylon fabric that catches the light. And that's it. It's not this deep philosophical. It, it is, but it isn't. <laughs> and so a child would look up at it and say, what is that? And they'd say, it's a building that's wrapped. Is that the most, it's very childlike and simplistic. And it's also very powerful. And there was, it's been like in the press, the German people, it was an incredible healing moment. So people that normally wouldn't mix all classes of society, immigrants were milling around this, this happening. It was very temporary, just for two weeks. and. This building was like a profound symbol of, of evil, basically. And this art happening really changed that. And so in Central Park, that wasn't that cultural overlay, but it was the park is not occupied in February. It's not, people are not, there's not tens of thousands of people swarming in Central Park. But because of this happening with these very colorful orange fabric gates, it animated the park. People come, since he's so well-known, I mean, he died, he was 84, so he lived a very full life, a working artist, made his living through art. So people from around the world follow him and come to these, these happenings. And it's, it's for the everyday people, too. It's for the people that live there. It's interesting that the installations, if that's what they're called, um, mm-hmm. that you've mentioned so far, have been an interaction with man-made spaces. And we can talk a little bit about his interaction with non-man-made spaces and being mindful a little bit of, the, of what we talk, uh, talked about at the beginning of the episode. We were thoughtful going into this episode about who is sort of like privileged to do art in a space, land art, or these installations, I guess not installations in the context I'm about to reference, but this type of art has existed for millennia and has been a part of indigenous expressions for a long time. So we don't mean to say that this is like new or that Christo invented this or it's never been done before, but he did it particularly well. And it sounds like he did it in a way that drew, that was deeply dependent on the interaction with people, that it was for people and not to say here's my mark on the landscape, you know, aren't I a genius? Um, right, agreed. I mean, uh, as part of the experience of, for his projects, to my mind, it's like all very democratic. So I got involved in the gates. It was, there was an article in the New York Times. I lived, have to live, live in New York then. You apply. It was about two years of, it was a process. And you had to stay with it. You had to keep corresponding. They'd say, are you still interested? Please fill out this form. Let us know. And so every morning we'd meet more or less like a central location in Central Park. There's various bodies of water and there's the boathouse that has, I think there's a bar, a cafe, and then a more fine dining. And there'd be weddings, events there, civic events. And so as workers, we were paid workers. So it's not a volunteer. You're paid a fair wage to do that. I would have done, I would have volunteered, but. And you get there quite early in the morning, maybe at seven, we had breakfast, and then it's Christo and Jean-Claude. So Christo would say, they'd say, where's the Christo artwork? He'd say, there is no Christo, it's Christo and Jean-Claude. And who was, is Jean-Claude? That's his wife. Is. Okay, very and so, good. <laughs> and so she had, at different times in her life, she had her, her hair was colored. And for the gates that were this, I mean, blazing red, she dyed her hair, it was this blaze, her hair was like pitch perfect color. And they were probably... It was 15 years ago. It was like 2005. So they would have been 
like in their late sixties about then. And they were so vibrant and we, we would have an interaction with them every morning. They would open it for questions. They would describe their day. Yeah, it was very compelling. Without Jean-Claude, I don't think the projects, Crystal would have still been on a very small scale. And she was, I mean, more or less probably the driver that incredible amount of politics and, and approval. Like, so you said, who has the right to do this? It's very difficult and it's very tedious. And they started, they did it in 2005. It was about 30 years before that, that they, it might've been Mayor Ed Koch, if I, or around that time, maybe even before that. And it took that long to get it approved. And it, it was the mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, that happened to be an appreciator of art, that civic art, public art, it brings out the best in people. It was for the greater good of the city. And it was, I mean, it was like a life-changing event for many people. So my introduction to Christo, it's just interesting, you know, as, <laughs> as we came together as a couple to think that, that his work was, a, like, I was aware of it. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm a classical musician, but I haven't, haven't taken an art history course per se, which I'm a little embarrassed by, but, you know, busy taking other required classes. And um, so there's an art appreciation, but it's not deep. It's, but my father had the artwork much like so we we have artwork that is of the gates in our home that's hung up and so he had a similar I, I think it's even a similar frame and it was uh, the image of the umbrellas in California and I guess they were also in another location Japan, at the same time at the same time so I remember kind of being very young and looking at those pieces of art and thinking I never got to see them though that's the thing is I have never seen had never seen a Christo work in situ. Is, mm-hmm, correct. I that, how you say that's it. a good way to say it. But my father has. So I think he's seen those umbrellas. I, I know he went to see the gates in Central Park. I sometimes wonder if maybe he met you <laughs> <laughs> in 2005. It's just funny how our lives can be interconnected in a weird way. I not know so, it, right? Yeah. So just had that awareness and that it was, as you said, it was an event, event-based. All right, correct. Like the New York Times describes, and that might be a good piece, the obituary. Christo, the Bulgarian-born conceptual artist who turned to epic-scale environmental works in the late 60s, stringing a giant curtain across a mountain pass in Colorado, wrapping the Pont Neuf in Paris and the Reichstag in Berlin, and zigzagging thousands of saffron curtain gates throughout Central Park. Died at his home in New York City. He was 84. Does it say who wrote that or is it just staff? Oh, that's uh, William Grimes, who's, oh, right. I'm going to guess, is, is an art critic. And this is also good. Christo, he used only his first name, was an artistic Pied Piper. I feel like when you hear the tune of the Pied Piper, you follow him. And his grand projects, often decades in the making, and all of them temporary. It's either 14 days or 10 days. It's very precise. And so the humble role I played in that was what they call an ambassador. And so you'd, Stand in the public, you, you wore a bib that said the gates on it. It was February, it was freezing cold. So we're standing outside in February. He had dressed very warm, but they fed us very you know, beautiful breakfast, beautiful lunch, and you would answer questions. And we had, the gates are made out of fabric, the, the material, which is like a woven nylon. And we had, we were given hundreds of samples. It was like a, maybe a two inch by two inch, which we have. And we would hand, if somebody asked, we would hand them out. Oh, wow. And so it was like a memento, a souvenir, and people would ask us questions. 
it was just to see the joy and wonder that it was. So maybe the core of his work is it could be a man, it could be a constructed landscape or a building or a naturally existing landscape. And his intervention, like could be a fat, an umbrella, a curtain, a gate, causes you to see what is there differently. And in a way, it causes you to see more deeply. Instead of just looking, it's causing you to see. And so my history with Christo was in the early 1990s when I was in, I was an art history student, amongst other things, studying him. And the professor we had in Rochester, New York, lived in New York City. He would commute. And so he was right in the thick of the New York City art world. And so he knew Christo and our professor was an art critic also. And so he was, his, he had an incredible amount of enthusiasm. And that was transferred, I mean, through education, his enthusiasm for like the authenticity of Christo, the vibrancy. He didn't really have any ulterior motives. He financed the work himself. He didn't take any sponsors. There was even, that even came up during when I, when I was working with him. There's a company that makes limousines called Maybach, which is like Mercedes bought it. So it's a very, very like a Rolls Royce. And so they wanted to, they wanted to give him a car because Crystal would tour the gates every day to take pictures. Central Park is, is so huge. So to see the most of it, it's hard to do that on foot. And so Krista said, oh, we don't, take, we don't take any sponsors or we don't get involved that way. And they said, oh, we're so sorry to hear that. He said, but we do take gifts from people that buy our artwork. And that's how he finances it. And so they bought, I think, three pieces, which was you know, probably over a million dollars. And that people that are art collectors are going to buy art. And then that Pied Piper, so that money is coming from somewhere, people that collect art. And it's going back into this public work that... New York City didn't pay a dime for. And then when you experience it, then it really sunk in on a deep emotional level. What is so special that you're out there in February in New York City, every time of day is different the way the light is hitting the fabric. Well, and apparently one of the big moments was the first part, the first portion, it was, it had not snowed. And then at one night it snowed. And so the next day after the snowfall, it was like an entirely different experience, Mm -hmm. which we were talking before the episode and kind of alluding to that point, this idea that, that the landscape that, you know, I get up every morning, <laughs> get my son out of bed and it's warm here in Texas. So we often go play in the backyard. So it feels like a routine. It feels like every day is the same, but you know, he's grown one more day and the grass has grown one more day and the birds are doing something slightly different in the yard. And that if you really pay attention it's never exactly the same. It's always shifting and changing. And your focus can always be on kind of the beauty that is unfolding rather than that, you know, that sense that like everything is mundane. It's always the same. And, you know, I'm back to the grind. Like, you know, that's um, such an oppressive feeling. And it's, it's Mm. neat to have that experience with the landscape in particular, because it draws so much out of you in terms of your senses, which, you know, we've done a whole episode on. So, yeah, I would agree. And then it, it brings you, Christo on some level is a deeply philosophical, spiritual person. He, he might not have considered himself that, but his work, it's very linear in a way. If I think of all the different pieces, it's creating, like we talk about having an ornament or a focal point, something that pulls you through the landscape. So the gates were more or less creating these 
accelerated areas where the intervals of them would be would be closer. You'd be on a path. And if you study Central Park, the paths are almost all curvilinear. And so if you study Olmsted's work, the only formal section more or less is the Alley of American Elms by Bethesda Terrace. So these paths are all very curvy. The, the height of the gates was all the same. I think it might have been, I'm going to guess it was 14 feet tall, you know, give or take. The width of the path varies a lot. I mean, the narrowest path might have been six or eight feet, and the widest might have been 14. So the width of the gates had to be the width of the path for safety. I worked the beginning of the gates. And so there were these team of, he was from Bulgaria. And so there were a team of people he would work with that were Bulgarian or from that region of the world that were rock climbers, more or less. So they were like, I mean, it was like being around like Olympic athletes. Some of these projects, they're hanging, they're climbing a mountain, they're hanging this curtain. And that same curtain, it followed the coastline, it went into the ocean at the end, or those umbrellas. So, and then there were people from the movie industry that did temporary production type work. That's who my boss was. Like people like from the film industry, that gig economy is that, that are geared to, you know, organizing many hundreds of people for a temporary period. So when they first hung the gates, it was the fabric, it was, ple- it was more or less pleated. So there was, it was pleated at the top. So when it hung down, there was a bigger volume it was more dramatic, it was subtle. And so when they first unrolled them, I remember that whole process. When I arrived, they were all installed, but the fabric was not hanging yet. And then so there was unfurling. And then when they were first hanging, you could still see all the pleats in the folds, like when you have a new pair of pants. And so it might have rained like one or two days into that. And so I remember Christo was so excited because the, the fabric that they selected you know, like what seersucker is, that it, it gets puckered and it's, it's imperfect. And so this fabric, once it rained, then those pleats went away. And because of the way the, way the fabric, the different patterns create, it, it catches the light. So it's almost this diamond-like uh, reflective quality that's orange. And it's, the landscape was, you know, a temperate landscape. So it's gray. I mean, it, it more or less is like a dull non-living landscape and then this light catching element was really striking they must have done a lot of research to find the the right fabric the Mm -hmm. right color the right effect so that's a pretty fascinating part of it so uh one of the things we sort of wanted to ask was how can you do this in your own yard i mean you can certainly wrap your fence in in fabric (laughs) if you so choose but I guess more along the lines of what are some what are some things we can do in the landscape in our own space? We talked about ornaments in the landscape, but what about just like your own environmental art process in your garden? I've seen people do that with children. That other conceptual artist, he's like almost like an earth or a land artist, Andy Goldsworthy. So his work is all about being temporary, temporal. What's so special, which I think is along the lines of what you're asking. Christo's work. So people visited Central Park and they're like, this is so incredible. It's everybody felt good. People, all walks of life, you know, all races, religions are out there enjoying Central Park, like Olmsted and Vox intended, I think. And so people said, it's such a shame. It costs millions of dollars to do it. Why is it only up for two weeks? You know, it's like a tra- it's people said it's like a crime. It's horrible. It should be up for a year. 
what made it so special is it's so limited. And that's, I mean, that's like what Mother Nature's all about. And so, like collecting flowers, making a bouquet of flowers, having, there's many flowers which you can float in, in a dish of water, like heliobores or almost any flower you could collect from your garden and then float it in a dish of water. It, it's not going to last for too long, but it'll last longer. Andy Goldsworthy's known for assembling leaves, so it, it could be a fall color or, or green leaves, and making gradations with them, where when you look at it, you, it's this perfect rainbow color or perfect gradation. You would swear that it was painted. It can't be mm-hmm. naturally existing. So. so getting acquainted with the found objects in your landscape might right. be a first step. What is it? What's out there? And then what can you do with it that might be fun or artistic or creative? And despite his genius, Christo didn't successfully do every project he conceived. Is that correct? Oh, right. I mean, it was grueling. In New York City, he started to apply that, this process in the 1970s. So it was particularly moving. I was born in the 1970s. I mean, it took, it was like about my whole life because I did that project. I would have been in my 30s. So my whole like three decades, he was working on getting that approved. And so his approach is to simultaneously be doing many projects at once, not just one. So tell me about the river in Colorado. All right. I believe it was the, if I have this right, the Arkansas River in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So that was a proposed project that was also decades in the making that was not realized. And so it was going to, so I applied to work on that. For that particular one, it was public land. So it may have been, there may have been federal land. So there was an environmental review. And Christo and Jean-Claude, there's a picture of her right there with her blazing orange hair. I mean, to my mind, very ethical and very rigorous in their, pro- in their process. And so any environmental review, so that's hiring engineers, environmental sciences to make sure this art installation did no damage. It wasn't disrupting any wildlife migration patterns. But for some reason, the, even though the environmental review, they passed everything with flying colors that was still, I don't recall the exact nature. If it was local people, local politics. What was exciting about that, because I studied that in quite in, de- in detail, was it was a section of this river that was known for rafting. So it was thousands of people. It was more or less an unpopulated area, as I re- remember in Colorado, a very arid, rocky, not mountainous, but hilly. And this, this river winds through it, and it's known to have thousands of people rafting. So he, also with fabric, but it was going to be like an ultramarine, like a very, like a rich blue, more or less sheets that would be, so there'd be cables that would go across the river. And it was not particularly high. So again, it might've been like 12 or 14 feet. He's creating these panels, not across the whole river, but for I don't know if it was miles. It was a good period of time. And you would, so you could walk along the bank and experience it. And it's transparent. So it's more or less mimicking what the water is. And it gave you, from all his renderings, it gave you the experience that, that you are underwater because you're under, under this overhead plane, like we talk about all the time. You know, does the space feel comfortable? And so there would have been a lot of ways to experience it. There were roads that went adjacent to the river. So, to park your car and walk and be looking almost down on this on these blue sheets that like the New York Times said the scale is epic so it's you know giant amounts of material which is ethically created it's similar to some other 
you know, ethical operations where part of the whole project is how is this going to be recycled? Maybe this will be donated. It's that it's not a wasteful, there's no element of waste in it. Well, and interestingly, you bring up scale because as I recall, the, the umbrellas were to be seen from the freeway. So California, mm. I don't know about Japan, but California certainly is famous for its freeways. And so the idea was that you were seeing these, like the hillsides in a different way as you sped down the highway, just because how often is your attention drawn to the Golden Hills? I mean, they're just mm-hmm. sort of there as you're going 80 miles an hour and listening to the radio, assuming you can do that, actually, <laughs> depending on where they were in California, you may have been stop and go traffic, but that's a whole other issue. So I think the idea of understanding scale, because of course, Central Park is walkable. So it would have been this different feeling and, and being sensitive to that kind of goes back to some of the design principles we've talked about. Right. So, and, it, and it was, it was in the thousands, you know, it was, yeah, it says here, 23 miles of pathways in Central Park. So there were 7,500 gates, 7,503. So he was a master of scale, you know, of knowing. And that's why is my landscape, architecture, landscape design training. And there's all different scales. There's the residential, the civic, the regional, the national, the international. And so to go between those is difficult. And he, he did that really well. So the, the gates... It worked on an individual pedestrian level. Some person riding a skateboard or a bike or, you know, a person in a wheelchair, they're going to have an experience going underneath it. Then there's the experience of Central Park is full of vistas like Belvedere, Castle, other places where you would, you would see this linear path created by this like more or less dotted line of the gates, you know, from a vista point, you could see hundreds of gates. And so the umbrellas were similar and those were enormous. There was not, it was not, I'm going to guess it was like a 15 foot wide umbrella. It was not the scale that you would have in your own backyard generally. And so he's really a master of animating the landscape. People were part of that animation. And then it's very limited, just like nature, like the Japanese principle of every two weeks about there's a new season, there's something special happening and flowers Often that's about how, about how long a flower will last. And so he was yeah, deeply in tune with that. All right. Anything else to share before we end this week's episode? Well, let's see. We always like to do a design principle. So the design principle of the week is repetition. That really relates to Christo. That it's, this is from shillingtoneducation.com. Repetition strengthens a design by tying together otherwise separate parts. And as a result, creates associations. Think of repetition as consistency. By repeating elements of a design, you immediately create a familiarity or an identity. And so what was so special about Christo's work, he's overlaying. So there's patterns in nature. There's something called green blindness, nature blindness. But many people, like when I look at a tree, I'm thinking, oh, that's that's a Mexican oak. <laughs> Many people, they don't even see that there's a plant there. It's like it's an actual phenomenon. So when, when they see a garden, it's just a bunch of green. And I might do that with other, you know, there might be other things I wouldn't. I, I guess it's like listening to a symphony. Like I can hear the different instruments. Oh, there's oh, the elbow coming in on a, you know. On a, so yeah, there's this discernment when you're really well acquainted with something. Right. And it's, I mean, it's philosophers, spiritual folks would say that's possible in every part of your life. Mm-hmm. If I give my attention to it, even if I don't understand it, I can really, really listen or really look carefully or taste. And so I think 
the magic of Christo and Jean-Claude's work, it helped everyday people do that on a deep level. There was like a spiritual resonance. And like, no matter what your beliefs were, you felt different, you felt good. Uh, people were interacting. It caused people to, there's something called triangulation. So if two strangers meet on a sidewalk, they might not talk. But if there's a beautiful flower or a mime or a sculpture or a fountain, there's that moment of, oh, isn't that so pretty? Look at the birds. And so Christo, Christo was a master of that, creating these, these human interaction moments and wonder. Great. Well, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this trip down memory lane as you, <laughs> <laughs> as you give your personal, you know, pay your personal respect. Mm-hmm. To an artist who is deeply important in your life and your your career, and um, and we invite you to share photos or your own impressions of of viewing Christo's work. You can point us in the direction of other environmental or land art that you think we should be aware of. Thank you, as always, for listening. We're so appreciative to everyone who joins us. That's right, and week. welcome anyone that's new. Yeah, we we appreciate it for sure. So we look forward to coming up with something else for next week. And uh, until then, we hope you're able to enjoy some little bit of the landscape in your own life soon. That's right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.